Very good. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> uh, how many of you trouble? How many of you are having trouble sleeping? <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Book of Acts, <clears throat> Acts chapter two. We'll begin reading this uh, this morning at uh, verse fourteen. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read through verse 36, which would be essentially Peter's sermon, the first sermon that Peter's probably ever preached, quite honestly. Um, it's after Jesus has ascended, obviously after he's been resurrected. It's about 50 days after, well, not about, it is 50 days after Passover, um, about 10 days after the fact that Jesus had ascended into heaven. This is, this is amazing, the, the day of Pentecost, the feast of harvest, the feast of of Booth, that this is the time in which literally that this is the beginning, the inception of the church on this day, the Feast of Pentecost. Um, there's some stuff taken. We'll, we'll tie it in, but let's read now. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing up at the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by the miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. As you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that she, he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope." Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
May God add a special blessing to the reading of his word and let us pause for prayer. Father God, we're here in your place, this place that we can gather to worship, to praise, to lift up your name and to glorify it as you and you alone are worthy to receive it. Father, these moments that we are sharing together in the word of God, we would ask that first and foremost, that the Holy Spirit would exclusively be our teacher. Father, you know the hearts and the lives that are here today, and you know their needs even before they do. Father, you know what they need this week, this month, this year. Father, we're so confident and so encouraged by the fact that you alone are God, sovereign, almighty. It's to you we come. We cling to you, Father, in humility crying for you to let us see more of you in these minutes before us. Again, asking the Spirit to lead and guide us in truth, as Jesus literally said would happen upon his departure. Thank you for all the promises that have been fulfilled. And now we praise your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Acts, <clears throat> Acts is that bridge, if you will, between the Gospels and Romans in the rest of the Bible. If you took Acts out of your Bible just for a moment, just imagine it's not there. You would be at the end of John and you'd roll into Romans and you would say like, what? Ah, there's a lot of stuff we missed here. Acts is that joining, that is that bridge. And Luke, the, the, the author, at least in the sense of the writer, Holy Spirit is the author, that literally wrote the book of the Gospel of Luke. And now, literally, it, we find ourselves in Acts. And here we are, we've been just cruising through it at a very slow rate of speed, if you've noticed, <laughs> which is fine, isn't it? It's great stuff. So just to, just to rehearse it quickly, um, the fact that Jesus Christ is, he's passing the baton. That's literally what it is from the Gospels on into the book of Acts. He's passing the baton of the work's done. It's completely finished. There's nothing left that I have left, that I have left to do, but you guys got a job to do. You need to pass on the whole message of the gospel. The message of salvation that all can be saved through me. Here's the baton, take it and run. Now there's 120 of those that were in the city of Jerusalem. They're quoted as the upper room. They're praying, they're waiting. Jesus has ascended into heaven. That must have been something to watch Jesus just go up into heaven. And you remember in verse, verse 8 and beyond, it was talking about there's two men, two angels, standing beside them. What are you guys looking up there for? It's time to go to work. Get back to praying. He's going to come the same way. Now, it's been over 2,000 years from that time when Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives right off to Jerusalem. He's coming back the second time. Now, there's an in-between coming. Literally, he's going to take us, those that are in Christ, those that have been, the word is caught up or to be caught away, if you will, in the rapture. We will meet him in the air. But the next time he comes to earth, when Jesus Christ lands on the earth, it will be on the same place, the Mount of Olives, the same place he ascended. And literally, that mountain will split and the Jews will see him for who he is. That's called the tribulation period. There's seven years coming. And I, I'll tell you what, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. Oh, that was revealing, wasn't it, Larry? But actually, if you start to unfold the events that are taking place in our world today, we are moving at an amazingly fast pace toward the very end. The book of Revelation will come to pass. Everything in the Bible that has come to this point in time in the sense of fulfillment and prophecy is fulfilled. Revelation will be fulfilled in its entirety as well. It will, there's no question. And if you start to look at the signs and the wonders that literally are unfolded in Revelation is coming, that's on the forefront, the future for us, it is coming at a very fast pace. Never has it made more sense. 
That same Jesus is coming again. But then, to mark a brand new era, a brand new dispensation, a time of which we were leaving the law and the Old Testament behind, cruising at an amazing rate of speed in the Feast of the Pentecost, Jesus Christ has left 10 days, and they're in, the, in Jerusalem praying, waiting, waiting, waiting. He didn't say what day. Or what are you guys waiting for? You're waiting for something, aren't you? We're always waiting for something. Who are you waiting on? Who are you waiting in? That's even a better question. They were waiting in a room in Jesus Christ. He said, wait, we're going to wait. Now, if you remember before Jesus Christ ascended, remember those guys that went back to Galilee with Peter and the crew? They said, let's go back to our old life. Let's go back to fishing. Let's do what we know best. I have to tell this story. This is probably one of my favorites. These guys are commercial fishermen. These aren't a Larry Melhoff that couldn't fish to save his life. I couldn't catch a fish if my life depended on it. I've had some guys actually tell me, I'll teach you how. So far, nobody can. So at any rate, so here we got these guys. They're good at it. They're really, really good. And they're, they, they're on their boat. They got their back to home time. It's old custom. We're ready to roll. And all night long they fish because they know the best time to fish. If you're a commercial fisherman, you know the places and you know the times. In the morning, they were skunked. They had nothing. And here's this guy on the shore. He says, throw your nets on the other side. I can imagine this guy looking in the boat. Who's that guy? What would he know? We've been fishing. We're good at this. We're good at this. And I'm sure somebody said, let's try it. We've got nothing to lose, right? We've got nothing to lose. And they do. And you know the story. They couldn't hardly even bring the net in. And they came to shore, and Peter recognized who it was. It was his Lord. Well, that's the same Peter that's here in this place. There's 120 of them gathered in the room of Jerusalem. They've been praying for the coming. Mary, his mother, Jesus' mother, is there in that room. I don't know if you think about this. I've said it several times in our time together, but Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers were in that room, and they received the Holy Ghost. It's amazing, isn't it? But there they are, and they're waiting, and here comes, 10 days later, finally, at Feast of Pentecost. I'll bet you they got up that morning, they ate their breakfast. I don't know what they ate, but they ate something, and they said, let's go. This is the day. This is a holy day. Now, one thing we didn't talk about, if you notice in Peter's sermon, he immediately said, these men are not drunk with wine. He's speaking in, refer in regards to Galileans being able to speak in a language that they wouldn't certainly have known. That Remember our map on the wall last week? Cappadocia and Pontius, all those other places. They were in language that were specific to that region of which men and women had come to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice on the Feast of Pentecost. And it's in a perfect language. They can hear the wonderful works of God of the Old Testament. That's crazy. And he said, you guys think, and then someone said, well, they just can't handle orange juice. I'm sorry, grape juice. Got it wrong, didn't I? <laughs> now, it was new. They said in the, in, the, in the scriptures last week, it was the new wine. That means it's just fresh grape juice. In other words, it's like, yeah, they just can't handle their grape juice. Oh, really? And Peter, there's something I didn't tell you, but at 9 o'clock, before 9 a.m., this is exactly the time frame, Jesus, our Peter gets up to give this sermon, the one I just read. It was at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, what I didn't tell you was the custom of the Jews, particularly at a Sabbath and on a holy day or a feast day, you never drank any grape juice or wine before 9 a.m. He mentions that. He says, no, it couldn't possibly be because it's the third hour, which you start, the Jewish day starts at 6 o'clock, so the third hour would be 9 a.m. And he starts off with this sermon. This same Peter, this same guy that was ready to just run away, give it all up. Now, the Holy Spirit has come. Let's back up just a few paces. The reason that Peter comes up, and you talk about an intro, 
They always say that, that a pastor needs a really strong intro, and then it just flows perfectly. Well, let's think about the intro that God gave to Peter. It was a mighty rushing wind that sounded like a hurricane, but it wasn't a hurricane, but all of the noise, all of the sound was just like that. And I've asked you guys, how many of you have been in a hurricane? You take that noise, nothing happened, but that noise, and people will come running to find out what that's all about. They did. That's how God gathered. Talk about calling people for a sermon. It was better than any advertisement. It was better than any commercial. God lays out this massive blow that sounds like a hurricane, and the people come running. The 120 people in this room now, that says that they have tongues of fire over their head. Every single one of them. Why? Because you can't see that. When's the last time you saw the Holy Spirit? You don't see the Holy Spirit. You can see fruit through the person of which that Holy Spirit is indwelling. We talked about that. This is a brand new change. For the Holy Spirit to come on every one of those 120 initially, and every single believer of Jesus Christ since then, every single one has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost? Every single person has the Holy Spirit. Now, that's completely brand new for this dispensation. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament would have come on the the saints that we know of, David. In fact, how would you like to have been Saul? No way. He knew what the Holy Spirit was like to work in him, and he left. The Holy Spirit left. Think of Samson, the mighty man Samson. He didn't even recognize when the Spirit, he was so used to having the power of God on him, and he left, and he says he didn't even know it. That's how the Holy Spirit came and went, anointed and potentially left. This is brand new information. And it's crazy because the people that have gathered are hearing the wonderful works of God in their native tongue. And on the map that we had last week, it showed from their homeland. They're here hearing the works of God, which is totally a sign from God. Anytime there was a foreign language mentioned in the Old Testament, it was always a sign of judgment. If you, and God said, there will be someone of a foreign tongue that will come to you and judge you. The Babylonians, what was the language they spoke? Well, it certainly wasn't Hebrew. I can assure you of that. All of that is speaking to the fact this is something different. Something is changing. It sets it up beautifully. The intro is fixed. Now, what's Peter going to do? What's he going to talk about? Is he going to talk about what? The weather? Is he going to tell stories? Is he going to tell jokes? Is he gonna, you know what? This, this passage of Scripture from verses 14 to 36 is absolutely about one person. It's all about Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind, we're in Jerusalem. It's about 40 days. No, it's about 50 days from when they just had Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. This city massively wanted democratically, if you will, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's hanging on a cross 50 days before. So do you think the message of Jesus is popular right now? Hundreds of thousands of people are once again gathered in Jerusalem, just like they were for the Passover. Just like at the Passover, as the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, spread his arms and died on a cross, gave his blood, was buried, and he rose again. Fifty days later, this message from Peter is given to those that are in this town. Do you think Jesus is any more popular? There was a lot of stories being told. In fact, one of them was circling was the fact that the apostles had stolen his body and made it look like a, a rising, a resurrection. Yeah, that's what happened. How is Peter going to handle this? You notice something? He just took over, didn't he? Did you, did you see the authority in, in, in Peter? This isn't the fisherman anymore. This is Peter the preacher. He's on it. He's all over it. This is literally the beginning of the church. This is Peter. He's going for it. He starts to talk about the fact, what's going on, what you've just seen, what you've just witnessed, literally, was something that began in the last day. Now, here's the other thing. 
what is he going to use for reference material to convince Jews? For instance, if you go to a Jewish rabbi today, you probably wouldn't go into the New Testament and share the gospel of Jesus, right? They're not hearing any part of that. So what is Peter going to do? He does exactly what Jesus taught him to do back in Luke chapter 24. It's probably in your notes. We've been going back through repeatedly. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45. He, has, he came in a, in a resurrected body form, pops into the room just like walking. He didn't walk in the door. He walked in through the wall, came in and said, peace be unto you, fear not. And it says that he began to teach them about the Old Testament scriptures, the fulfillment of the Messiah within the Old Testament. That's a good place to be. And in fact, how much do the disciples know about Jesus's, Jesus, the prophecies about Jesus Christ being crucified, being buried, being rose again? None, zero, because they would have no part of it. And you know what? This is a different Peter, isn't it? You know why? Because he went to the Jesus Seminar 101, right, in his house as they unfolded the scriptures of the Old Testament, right? You want to go to a seminar to read about the Old Testament and seeing Jesus in the Old, that would have been the one to go to. That was the one not to miss. You know what it cost? Only discipleship, belief faith in that one. So here he is. He's uh, Peter. He's raising up a passage that we find in actually in Joel. Joel chapter 28, I'm sorry, Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. And it talks about, he, he recites it, he gives it to them. And this is, now this is the part where we would sometimes miss it. You read that whole thing that talks about the, you know, the, the moon being darkened and all of that stuff happening. Well, if you think about it, it's just like an Old Testament prophet. Look, look at Daniel. He saw the coming of the Messiah as the coming of the kingdom, all in one sequence. It would be like us looking at that mountain range, and we can see Mount Baldy. I'm going to tell you something. If you take from here in a straight line, you will find a few other crevices and valleys and dips and a few other mountain peaks that you will say that you will see from a vantage point getting to it. Daniel would have seen the Mount Baldy, if you will. He didn't see all the stuff in between. We are the recipients of the grace period. From the time when the church started, the, the distance we have is 2,000 plus years. And how much further? We don't know. But I'm here to say confidently it will happen just as Daniel said it would, just as the other Old Testament prophets said it would. It will unfold. But in the meantime, we are seeing a period of time that God is blessing the church age, the Gentiles, if you will. The last days, now we talked about this last week. How many of you think we're living in the last days? And you all said we did. When did the last days start? That's what we spent a little time on last week. It started when the Messiah came. Messiah came and the beginning of the last days happened. That's what Joel chapter 2 is about. It's not the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. It's the beginning of the fulfillment or what we'd call, you've heard of fulfillment. Think of it pre-fulfillment. It's like the beginning. He's opening the scriptures to them. He said, right there, that is the beginning of the last days, and it's here today. In fact, he talks about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Let's read it. He's, he's, he starts with his sermon this way. He's laying out his theme, and his first thing is, as he says, it shall come to pass, verse 17, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That's literally the beginning. That would be like the pre-fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. This spirit that you're seeing right now, these languages that you're hearing in your tongue, that's the unfolding of the beginning of the last days that we see in Joel. And it's not the fulfillment of all of Joel, because you say, wait a minute, the sun didn't. No, it didn't. It will. And you know when it's going to happen? At the very end of the tribulation. This last days is lasting for a very long time, isn't it? It's lasting a very long time. But Peter, Peter is saying with a great deal of authority that the day of the Lord, which is the passage it's about, and it begins in, 
at the time of Jesus Christ's coming that literally the salvation plan is now complete. It only needs to be shared, and there's an invitation. Now, look at that. As he comes to the end of that, he said, It shall come past, verse 21, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the message. That's the message of the messianic age. Literally, Jesus Christ accomplished everything necessary. He died. He was buried. He rose again. Now, all you need to do is call upon that name to be saved. That's going to be the same. It's been the same all throughout, hasn't it? From the beginning of time, in the sense of mankind, Adam had to believe in the fact there was a Redeemer coming. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first promise in the Scripture that talks about a Redeemer coming through the seed of the woman. Same thing. You must believe on what God said to be true. Now, he had planned it even before then. Ephesians chapter 1, verses, chapter 1, verse 4. For he, God, chose us, that's the ones that are, that are saved, in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. That's pre-planning, right? That's a thing we would call preordination or predeterminate counsel. We'll find it in just a few verses. This is something that God would have handled. It's going to happen no matter what. No matter what. No matter what. Thank God for his love for us. As we get into the fact of how is he going to tie this in now? What, what, is, what is this last days have to do with beginning the sermon? Well, if you're in the Messianic age, the last days, and see, to Daniel or to the Old Testament prophets, they would have saw that coming of the Messiah and the last days to be very, very tightly grouped. And when the Messiah came, they didn't understand the death and the resurrection and the burial. They saw the kingdom coming on the heels of the coming of the Messiah. So what do you have to have if you have the Messianic age? If you have the last days, which equals the Messianic age, what do you have to have? Don't, make it, don't overthink it. A Messiah. You've got to have a Messiah, don't you? If you have a Messianic age and you have last days, who's the Messiah? That's exactly what Peter's going to spend the rest of his moments with this group. Who is the Messiah? And he does it just fantastic. In fact, let's watch it unfold. They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So far, he's got them right with him, right? They are eating out of his hand. It's like having them, yeah, yeah, that's exactly, that's what Joel is. Oh, is that so at the beginning of the last days? Oh, my goodness, the Holy Spirit, that makes great sense because he's going to fall on, oh, wow, that makes perfect sense. Perfect. Now, who's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? He must be coming. Can you see it? Can you feel it? He's about to blow them out of the water because what he's going to come up with is not what they thought or what they want to know. And you're going to start to see a contrast. They did this, but God did that. They did this, but God did that. We find that all, particularly through this, path, through this particular sermon. So here we go. He says in verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words. He's got them set up. Jesus of Nazareth, boom, that's like hitting a wall. What are you going to say about Jesus of Nazareth? He's a loser. He was crucified 50 days ago. We know him, but he's... What, what do you mean Messianic age and Jesus, being, Jesus of Nazareth being in the same tune? That's his job. This is what this sermon is going to be unpacked. Peter is going to make Jesus of Nazareth, the hated one in Jerusalem, to become the Messiah. Watch him, watch him do it. He says this, him, I'm sorry, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you... How? By miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. Now, is that true? Miracles, wonders, and signs. What is a miracle? What is a miracle? 
We use that word kind of flippantly almost, right? If something happens that it goes well, we say, that was a miracle, right? And sometimes it's just kind of something little, right? But what is a miracle? Excuse me? Something you can't believe in the sense of it's above and beyond what would be natural or ordinary, correct? It would be like a mighty work. It would be a mighty deed. It would be something that's almost unexplainable. Right. And divine, that's right, a divine intervention. I think of, uh, who, was, who was the guy that were fighting? And he said, if you could let me have another, you know, he said, just keep that sundial back so the time doesn't advance. Was that Joshua? It was one of those, maybe it was Gideon. Gideon. It doesn't matter. Sorry for the, for the ignorance on my part. But there's one guy who said, we're going so well. We're having such a great day. We are winning so big. God, if you could just give us another 12 hours, it would be awesome. Give us another 12 hours of daylight. And he did. And I'm thinking, hmm. No, I'm not. I'm not thinking. But, but you see, I'm saying, no, that's, a, that's an act of God. That's a mighty deed. That's inconceivable. It's unexplainable. It's beyond what we can explain. That's what a miracle is. But here's the part. It says miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles are a mighty deed. Let's just leave it at that. What is a wonder? Hmm. Now you're quizzed, aren't you? How does that fit together? Well, let's say the feeding of 5,000. That's right. That's, no, that's exactly right. Without saying it, how was it seen by those around him? Let's take the feeding of 5,000, which probably closer by the time he had women and, and kids, wives and children. He probably fed 20,000. Now, I don't know about you. If you start with one Happy Meal and you turn that into 20,000 Happy Meals, and this is a good Happy Meal. This isn't a McDonald's. This is Jesus' Happy Meal. When you eat it, it was, that was great. 20,000. 20,000 people. Now, how they responded is the wonder. How did he do that? They ate something that wasn't in existence an hour before. Have you thought of it that way? You didn't buy that. He gave you something that was not even in existence minutes before. That's a miracle and a wonder. But what's a sign? What's a sign? Because this is what it's about. Jesus never did a miracle just to do a miracle. His heart was touched. There's compassion. We've talked about that in our study through Mark. If someone said, show us a sign. Jesus, you show us that you're really who you say you are. You know what? Never responded. You know why? Because it was for the wrong reason. They didn't believe anyway. Right? They never did. The ones that wanted that. But when there was a sickness, there was illness, there was a, a demon possession, there was, a, or I should say, demon influence. You take all of those kinds of, or a death. Remember that? Lazarus. Now, that's crazy. That's a miracle. That's one that they saw. It was reported widely through Jerusalem. And guess how far... Bethany is from Jerusalem, where it actually happened. It's five miles. What? You mean he raised somebody five miles from Jerusalem? From the dead? Among you, it says. They saw this. What's the sign? Proof. And literally pointing to a spiritual truth. That's the proof, a spiritual truth. Remember when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know where he said that? It's in John chapter 11, verse 25. You know which chapter he, that he raised Lazarus from the dead? Chapter 11. 
Now, he gave the sign before he showed them, because I'm sure if he would have, they would, but they would have been so blown away, by, he says, Lazarus, come forth. You know what? They couldn't have heard any sign at that point. It would have been just blowing their mind. But he said before he even said any of that, did any of that, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then that day, that moment, he literally calls for Lazarus to come out. That's a sign. That's a spiritual truth. That's a proof of he is who he says he is. What did he say with the feeding of the 20,000? You know, we could say the feeding of 5,000, that's conservative. It was 5,000 men. 20,000, you know what he said in that concourse? What was the sign? I am the bread of life. Made more sense than that. You ate a meal that wasn't even in existence, and this man is at the front of the room saying, I am the bread of life. Mm. Do you think it resonated at that point? That's the purpose of the miracle, to create wonder, the receiving of the, how did they, in awe, and then pointing the sign back. Now, the sign is not a sign to itself. If you see a sign that says, uh, I don't even know if there is one. Is there one that says Walter's IGA or Walter's Harbor Reserve sign? We don't go to the sign for the store. The sign is pointing the way to the store. You go into the store. The sign is a way to get there. It's just like a sign of a miracle is the fact that it's pointing you where? to truth, to Jesus Christ, to God, literally unfolding the way. So you have miracles, wonders, and signs among you. Doesn't that make sense? It's so beautiful, in fact. You guys saw this stuff. You saw Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, even the religious leaders, you know what they said? This guy does mighty works. They even received that. But you know what they didn't see? was the sign. They missed the sign. How many times have you missed signs and ended up somewhere where you didn't really want to go? Now, there's one you'll never miss. Have anybody been to the Wonderland Caves in South Dakota? There are signs for 9,000 miles before you get there. You couldn't miss that one. I remember as a, as a family outing, this was many, many time, years ago. And my, you know, we were, we, were, we were in North Dakota, and we're driving you south, going to go to the Black Hills. And we see the first sign of the Wonderland Caves. Oh, Dad, let's go there. You have to get this, I don't know, a 68 Chrysler or something, you know, beautiful bomb, you know. And we're in the backseat. Can we go? Can we go to Wonderland Caves? And I don't know, my dad said something like, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, something like that. Great deal of, ex- of exuberance and enthusiasm, right? <laughs> but, but I'm sure he was thinking the same thing. It can't be very far. We've seen a sign, right? The sign is pretty close. Isn't that what we usually think? You see a sign, it's close. That is not the case. That is not the case. In fact, as we think of the Bible, you know, the first time there was a sign there was coming Jesus, a coming Redeemer, it was in Genesis chapter 3. That was a long ways off. In fact, the books of the Old Testament continue to show signs of who Jesus was, and the fulfillments are in the New Testament in Jesus' life, and those signs pointed the way. It was just like that. Has anyone been to the Wonderland Caves? Not one person in this room? Just me? This is crazy. And no, don't, don't, don't bother, okay? <laughs> and I shouldn't say that because those people, it, 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 it's quite a unique thing. But the point of the matter is, we followed signs and we followed signs. And finally, we just said, who cares? <laughs> I don't even want, it's, where is it at? Is it even here? Is it on this planet? And sure enough, we finally drove in to my dad's probably complete amazement, particularly, and relief. We're finally here. Let's get this off the bucket list, right? But I just remember how the signs led to that place. It wasn't the sign. It wasn't the sign for the sign. It was leading us literally to the place. That's what Jesus' miracles did. There was wonder in the receiving of that, but it was the sign that he was using as a truth to point him where? To God's work of salvation. God did the work. That's the other thing. In this whole passage, you know what people did? Nothing. God did it all. 
Let's keep going. Sign of wonders among you. He's mentioned Jesus of Nazareth. To, why would you say that man's name? And then it says, which God did, verse 22, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. It's like, just, you guys know what he did. You saw what he did, you and you saw the signs that he talked about. You guys know this. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Wow, is that verse full of stuff. Now let's take, we didn't do this before, but if you're going to take Peter's sermon apart, he starts off with an Old Testament prophecy, the last days, and he said, this is what we're seeing right now. The Holy Spirit is coming upon all of these. That's very different. That's very new. But it would be the beginning of the last days. Then he talks about the fact if there's last days, that's the messianic age. There's got to be a Messiah. We're going to have to deal with that. And he leaves Jesus of Nazareth out. Because how would he be proved? By miracles, wonders, and signs. And you guys know it because you saw it. And watch what he's going to do. He's going to spend one verse on his death. He's going to spend one verse on his burial. And pretty much the rest of the, me the message is about the resurrection. That's why I've said repeatedly, you hear me say it, for the rest of my life, that the only reason I'm literally a Christian is for one reason, and that is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If he did not raise from the dead, I would be pounding my chest and speaking utter idle words because it means nothing if he's still in the grave. Peter is essentially saying the same thing. That's why we can have the feast of the, the day of Pentecost. That's why we can have the Holy Spirit because Jesus said he would come when I left. And when the work is all done, when he literally rose from the dead, sealed the deal. If Jesus had never risen from the dead, there would be no church. You would not be here. There would be nothing to have. There's nothing, nothing, nothing without the resurrection. So let's see what he says about what's next. When, I, when you read him, that's Jesus, being delivered. Delivered. How? By the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What? What? Jesus was delivered by God to be crucified? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Now, here's, the, here's a, a verse that is that paradox of you've heard of election or God's sovereignty and the will of man or the responsibility of man, right? And, and if you understand that, you are by yourself because no one outside of God really has the full picture of what that is. Both concepts are well within the Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God willed that all would come to repentance. Everyone he wants to come to repentance. There's other places that you're, cho that you're chosen, you're elected. In this case, at the predetermined council, the predetermined place of God. In other words, let's get this right. This is preordained, if you will. When something's preordained, it's going to happen no matter what. Even when it looks like it's not going to, it will that's God's plan. It, you, the word predestination sounds like this monster word, right? And right away, you want to do things with it that maybe aren't exactly even the deal. Predestination has a lot more to do with plan than person. This preordination, this predestination was absolutely fixed that Jesus Christ would be crucified at the hands of men. Nothing changed that. Nothing could change that. But here's the catch. There were men that were responsible for doing that. Judas Iscariot, he betrayed Jesus Christ. God didn't make Judas Iscariot do that. In fact, Jesus said, woe unto that man, right? In fact, let's, let's find that verse. I think I might have written it down. I think it's in Luke. Let's go to Luke 22, 22. 
I'm hoping this is right. Luke 22, 22. Let's have a look. You see almost the same thing. Oh, this, this actually fits into the, the Last Supper, the time they're going to we'll start in verse 20. Uh, Luke chapter 22, watch now carefully, verse 20. Likewise also the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup, is, my, is the New Testament. This is the new covenant. In my blood, everything's going to change, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly, watch now, the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. See, it's the same concept. It didn't matter if it was Judas. It could have been somebody by the name of Bob. Is there any Bobs in the room? Sorry, Bob. You've just become Judas for a second. I'll pull you right back off of that death trap. But literally, if Judas Iscariot hadn't done exactly what his heart was open to doing, that was to receive Satan, if you will. There was a point where God literally delivered Judas Iscariot at the point that he sold himself out. He delivered him to Satan himself to do the work that God predetermined would have to happen for us to enjoy salvation today. All predetermined, all preordained. Nothing could have changed that. The name of the person could change. God knew in foreknowledge who that person was. He knew exactly who it was. He knew exactly the heart of him. Jesus Christ, 12 disciples, surrounds himself by him. He says, you're all disciples. There's one that is a devil. That was the one that was selected because he was a devil. And he turns out that he's the one that betrays the Son of Man. The sovereignty of God versus the, the responsibility of man. Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. That is a really, shall we say, complex paradox. Did Jesus Christ die for all men? Yes, he did. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. For whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever. And yet, the sovereignty of God overrides. It is always in place. It's never in check. The sovereignty of God has preordained, predetermined everything that is going to unfold in the scriptures. There's no question about it. It's not, a, it's not up for, for debate. That's what Satan can't figure out. He's trying to always thwart God's plans. You know what? God uses Satan to make his plans work. Look at Job. I can't tell you how happy I am and joyful, that's even a better word, that the book of Job is in the word of God. I want to see somebody like Job and God working in his life for me to see as an example. And Satan, his plan was, was to destroy Job and wipe him off the face of the earth and show God that literally I know a lot more about mankind than you do. And you know what? Job was the perfect example that complete love in God is irregardless of circumstances. That's what Job proved. Satan said, I'll just, just let me have him. Let me have you take the stuff away from him, and I'll, I'll show you who he is. He's nothing but a protected little spoiled brat. You take the stuff away, he goes away. Didn't happen that way. Not at all. And the really cool part, and this is what's really good. This is the part I want to see, is the trials... The struggles that Job went through, you know what? It made Job twice the man he was before. Count it all joy, James chapter 1, verse 3 or 4. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various temptations, it says in the King James, or trials. For the trying of your faith works the patience. And patience has a perfect work, and you become much more mature. You look at Job at the last chapter in the book, 
compared to the first chapter in the book. And it was almost like he didn't know who God was because he's actually making sacrifices for his kids. Nothing wrong with that. He's praying for them. He's doing everything imaginable he can do. But it was like he was, he was trying to do things without really knowing who God was. At the end of Job, he knows who God is because God showed him and told him who he was. One question that God never answered in Job, you know what it was? It's the one I refuse to ask myself. I try never. If I'm starting to ask the why question, the focus is back on me. Job asked the why question finally. You know, he never asked the beginning. It's his friends that drove him to it. Job, what did you do wrong? You obviously did something. God's not going to treat somebody like that if you didn't do something wrong. And you know what? Up comes that self-righteousness, right? I didn't do anything wrong. And pretty soon he's asking, God, yeah, why? Why did you do this? God did not answer that question. You can search Job all you want, and you will not find the answer to the why. But what you'll find is you'll find God expressing and revealing himself to this man, Job, that is literally repenting in humility and ashes, as it says. And you know what? He says, no, you and you alone are God. I don't need to know the answer to that. You were above me. You were beyond me. You were amazing. Help me. And you know what God did? He said, you know, first thing you do, first order of business. How many of you pray for, for others? How many of you? You don't need to raise your hands. I know you do. You know what? God told Job, he said, I need you to pray for your friends. Because <laughs> they're in a lot of trouble. And you know what Job did? He prayed for his friends. You know what God did? He, re, he re, really removed the iniquity from his friends. The trouble that they brought. And then he blessed Job beyond measure. He had twice the number of kids, right? twice the number of stuff because he was ready for it. I'm way off in another branch. My rabbit is tracing around this trail. I got to get it back. I got to go find my rabbit and bring him back. So what were we talking about? Predeterminate counsel of God. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can change it. Those men that he's speaking to, Peter right now, let's go back to, let's slip back into this sermon. Let's slip into Peter. He's saying, you guys, you guys, by the hands of the Romans, you weren't even man enough to do it yourselves. You made the Romans kill the Messiah. And he probably said it with that tone of voice. Because he has now made Jesus of Nazareth, the one they killed at the hands of Romans, the Messiah. Because he did miracles, wonders, and signs. And you killed him. It's probably quiet in the room right now. He goes to point two, verse 24. Whom, not only is the life of Christ, but he's going to go to the death. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Again, you see God doing the work. God planned it. He gave the miracles, wonders, and signs, verse 22. That's what God did by him. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up. He's raised him up, the resurrection. You killed, God raised. You rebelled, God fixed. Now you see that it says, having loosed the pains of death. That word pain there in the Greek actually means birth pangs. Birth pangs. Think of, this, think of it this way. You, a, a child being born, there, are, there is pain, there are birth pangs prior to that child being delivered. That word is not used futilely here. It's not just the pains of death. It's the birth pangs. It's the beginning of life in Jesus. That's the, that's the intention of what's being said here. The birth pangs of his death. It was the beginning of a brand new life. And he's the one that, served, that had the, the birth pangs or the pain upon him to create this new life. God's the one that raised him up. You killed, God raised. 
if you will, the tomb was the womb. Held in for three days, a woman will hold a child for nine months. That tomb, unused by Joseph of Arimathea, provided a, remember that, we're talking about God's providence. How, you know, it's the morning of the crucifixion. You know where Jesus is going to be buried? No. Nobody knew. Only God knew. But we knew they had to be buried. The chances of Jesus literally being thrown onto the, 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 the garbage dump, the Gehenna, if you will, was very high. He's just a criminal. He's a, he's a joke. But here comes Joseph of Arimathea just a couple hours before, needed, at just the right time, and he offers his unused tomb, which literally became the womb of new life. Three days later, whoosh, guess what? We talked about this. The Passover lamb, Jesus was crucified. Three days later, there was also a feast called the first, a feast of first fruits on the day Jesus rose. Perfect, right? Pentecost, that's the, heart, the, the first fruits, the wave of the first fruits of the next harvest. Poof, new life, new church. Isn't this, isn't this per Timing is absolutely spot on. Jesus died at the right time. He was buried at the right time. He rose at the right time. We, being part of the church, was exactly at the right time. Not late, not early. Now, there's once in a while, I've had one of those weeks where I'm, I need to find a lot of money quickly to pay a lot of bills. Now, I'm sure I'm alone, right? No one else has ever had that happen. And right now, I think God's a little bit late. <laughs> but you know what? He's always right on time. I know I'm in his hands. We're being cared for. Because he is life. God raised him up. Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 17. The Jews, there's a term here that's actually, they felt that they were almost, well, super privileged. Maybe that's a good term. Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. They saw the law as being, they possessed the law. They didn't worry about keeping it. But look at this, verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew and resteth, in the law. In other words, they're resting in the fact they have the law they didn't, and making thy boast of God. It's not that they kept it. We have the law. We have the law. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Let's watch the, the pronouncement that Jesus literally makes that we, they have different fathers. John chapter 8. Let's go there for a moment. John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 37. John 8 and then verse 37. Um, maybe verse 32 would be a better place. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Um, now, you know what it doesn't say? You shall know the truth, and the truth is easy. No. I remember hearing the truth, even about Jesus Christ. I was just a young, young lad, five or six years old in a swing set. And I don't know what my mother said, but she said something, and I was struck to the heart with the conviction of my sin. I was a sinner, and there wasn't anything I could do about it. The truth Yes, it set me free, but the truth was not painless. Isn't that true? But I want the truth, because without the truth, you can't get fixed. The truth shall set you free. Jesus is saying that, and he goes on to say in verse 33, They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou that you, you shall be made free? Well, they're seeing themselves as Abraham's seed, right? They're, they're from Abraham's father. Jesus answered him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. That's a true statement. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And I know that you are Abraham's seed, physically, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. 
If I speak that which I have seen of with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. <gasps> Ooh, that was a nasty one. That was a double slap, right? In other words, my father is who I'm following. And if you were of my father, you would hear what I'm saying, but you don't because you're of your father. That's two different fathers. Uh-oh, this looks like trouble. <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse, verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not, Ab in other words, Abraham did not seek to kill me or anything that was regarding around God. You do the work, the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you yet not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, ooh, the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and a father of it. Because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. And then it went downhill from there. <laughs> He laid it out. And amazing, how do you know someone loves God? You keep his commandments. You follow after truth, something they didn't do. He is, Peter is laying this out there for these guys. Their pride, the Jews, was in the fact that their possession was of the law. The birth pangs, the first fruits, something there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that you are relying on if you've trusted Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. I'm going to start moving along here quickly. Verse 14. And God both, I'm sorry, and God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. That is a fantastic verse. Your resurrection is guaranteed because it's exactly the same power raising Jesus and you that are in Christ. That's as good a news as I can tell you. It's a guaranteed product. You will be raised from the dead, just as, as God rose, raised Jesus Christ. It says that he couldn't be held by death. Why? Why couldn't he be held by death? We've already talked about it, but a little bit. But uh, as Lazarus, he approaches this, and what did he say in, in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, in John chapter, John chapter 11, verse 25? I am the resurrection and the life, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. What is that telling us? He couldn't be held by death because he has too much power. There's no way death could hold Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead. He had too much power. Not only did he have too much power, there was God's promises. Where did I leave you? What, what book are you in? If you're not in John chapter 2, that's where you need to go next. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and let's look at verse 19. John 2, 19. There's promises also in the, in, in the effect that Jesus himself gave, plus all through the Old Testament. He talks about his body, if you will. Jesus answered and said, all right, let's go to verse 18. It's, this fits in beautifully what we're talking about. Then answered the Jews and said to him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? What's the sign? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple building, this physical temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. But he said he spoke of the temple of his body. That's exactly the promises that, was, that God had 
uh, portrayed all through the Old Testament. He couldn't be held by death. He had too much power, and there's God's promises. The resurrection through the Feast of First Fruits is going to happen. The other thing is God's purposes. As we've said numerous times, God's plan from the very beginning and beyond was the fact that He was going to provide resurrection. Because that was fulfillment of salvation. Salvation was what God had planned all along. He knew Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that they would eat of that fruit in that garden. He knew it before they even lived. He knew it before He'd even made the world. And He designed a plan, a salvation plan to save them, even if it took death on Christ's part. Let's go back to Acts. Let's read this passage that he pulls in now from, from David. Now, when he said the word David, guess what? He's got him back. He's got him back. David is the king. He's the king of Israel. This is, this is someone we can listen to. He says in verse 25, David speaketh concerning him. Speaking of him, the Messiah of Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. And he was focused totally focused. You know when I get in trouble? You know when sin and temptation have, have a, a real, we do war, is when I'm looking at it and I'm not looking at Jesus. Isn't that not true? The more I'm focused on the Lord, the Lord God, the more I'm focused on Him, it's just a lot easier. As soon as my eyes drop, it's kind of like some, <laughs> where's your attention? Where's it at? Where's it at? You know, the key to having a dog and you're trying to train that dog to follow your commands at any cost, right? You throw a piece of meat out there, that dog is, whoof, he's on it. There are those that will use training techniques to get the eyes back on you so that you can say, okay, it's okay for you. But until then, it's not okay. Isn't that exactly? It's, that's what sanctification is about. We're looking at God, and he's the one that gives us release to be everything that we're to be. Where's your eyes? Where's your focus? This is what David is actually saying in the fact of Psalm chapter 16. You can write that in your notes. This is a repeat, if you will, of Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. He was keeping his eyes on God. Let's keep going. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice. My tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now, wait a minute. Is this literally... Now, we find it in Psalms, and David is the one that's writing it. It's written in first person. But literally, Peter is using this example that it's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to, in this case, Jesus of Nazareth. How do we know that's true? The next verse relays it for us. He's saying this. He says, you all know, men and brethren, verse 29, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He's dead and he's buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, that's the anointed one, the king, the anointed king, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. Now think of that for a second. Literally, in Psalm chapter 16, it is the Messiah saying the words through the prophet David. Because why do we say that? David died. He went to the gates of Hades, if you will, to death, and he also, his body would have known corruption. They were standing, this is Peter saying, right here's his grave. Right here is David's grave. We know that his body is corrupted as such. That is a messianic song that's speaking of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, coming through the loins of David. In fact, there was a promise that God made to David, which is very key. This is absolutely important for David to have said this. 
God promised him, so let me set up the context. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can turn there as, we, as we're talking. Uh, David is wanting to build a house for the Lord God. He wants to build a temple. And it, what got him to it, this is, this is the heart of David. He was a man after God's own heart. Remember that? He wasn't flawless. You, can, you know that for sure. But he had a man, he had a heart after God. He had built this wonderful house for himself. And he said, this isn't right. God needs a better house than I have. I'm going to build him a house. So he tells Nathan the prophet, he said, you know what? I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan says, oh, sounds good to me. Nathan goes back to God and God says, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, time out. I don't want David to build my house. I've got another plan. But let's go to, I told you to go. I should have started turning there myself. But uh, what did I tell you? Second, Second Samuel chapter 7. I may have to dig. I didn't write it down, but I think that's right. Second Samuel chapter 7. And let's see if we can find where to start. Second Samuel chapter 7. Two, two, two. Where does it say that now, huh? Let's, uh, let's go to verse 11. I think I'm going to... Now, I, I like 4. You, you were right. Let's go with 4. It came to pass, this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. It came to pass that that night the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build you not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee, whether server thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And a sense, the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord will tell thee that he will make thee a house. When the days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, watch, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the, king, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the children of, of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Watch. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. What is he saying? Literally, the kingdom of David... Or the kingdom of God would literally come through David, and there would be a kingdom forever, speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why, for me, one of the things that a genealogy to a Jew is of utmost importance. That's why I'm curious in the sense of Jewish people. When you go through the genealogy of Matthew, which has a Jewish context to it, see, I would want to know if I was a Jew, where did Jesus come from? And you follow both Mary and Joseph. Now, Joseph was not Jesus' father. But this is what's so cool. God made sure that the stepfather, in this case, and Mary, the mother, both descended from whom? David. See, that would mean a lot to me. And yes, it's in the New Testament when it's thrown off by a Jew. But at the same time, guess how many genealogy records they have right now? Zero. You know why? 
Just as Jesus said that they would destroy that temple, the town of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was completely wiped out in AD 70 and all of the genealogical records that would have been so minusculely kept to show the genealogical line of the king of David was completely gone and trashed. Do you know where you find it? You find it right here in God's word. Matthew chapter 1. He came from the line of David. David is speaking. Let's, let's go on. Let's go back to Acts. We're going to have to move quickly now, aren't we? Imagine that. Me quickly. Okay, let's try. Let's try. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 and let's go. Acts chapter 2. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet. That's David. Speaking of David, being a prophet. He's speaking. He's speaking, but God is bringing the words out. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. We just looked at it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That of the fruit of his loins, from his line, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, that's the anointed one, to sit on his throne. He, seeing this, before spake of the resurrection of Christ. He would see no death. He would let our death would never, there would be no corruption. He would be risen from the dead. He said it before, that his soul was not left in hell or Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now watch this. He's setting it up beautifully. Peter now is going to slam the point home. He has said, let's review before you go to the next verse. Don't read the next verse. Don't read it. Stop. Now you've read it. Okay, stop. Here's his sermon. What's his sermon about? Well, his sermon is because there's a fantastic intro and the Holy Spirit is, can you imagine, 120 different languages potentially? Maybe it wasn't all 120 languages, but there are 120 people speaking in tongues they did not know before. And guess what? They were from y'all, y'all up north. It was called Galileans. It was Galileans. Couldn't talk the real language. Those guys, they're speaking in French and you name it, right? And that was like, what in the world is going on? Peter steps to the mic. He says, men of Israel, listen carefully. Joel in chapter 2, verse 28 through 32 tells us this. This is the last days. The last days being the era of the Messianic age. And if there's a Messianic age, there's a Messiah. And that Messiah, literally men and women, because of the miracles, wonders, and signs, is Jesus of Nazareth, who you killed that God before ordained that he would exactly do that. And then he was buried. And God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. I think he said it 18 times. And you know what? They knew that was true. Every person in that room knew that that was true. It wasn't some fictitious thing. There would have been too many places that cat could have been thwarted right there. And now he's driving it home. David, our ancestor, spoke of the Messiah, the Christos. See, Christ and Messiah means the same, anointed king. That to them means something. To us, when I say Messiah, you think of baby in a manger, don't you? The Messiah came. That's usually where we start, right? The Messiah. It's beyond that. For a Jew, it's the king ruler, Messiah, the anointed king. And now watch how he slams us home now. He's used David to point forward. Speaking of the Messiah, he would never taste of death in the sense of corruption to his body. Watch him bring it home. Next verse. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, God exalted him. And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed this, the Holy Ghost, which you now see and hear. And then he goes to Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. We'll not go there. David is not ascended into heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make my foes thy footstool. See, right now the kingdom of God is set aside for a moment. Jesus is not ruling and reigning physically on this earth. He will when he comes the second time. At the end of the tribulation period, when he comes back to the Mount of Olives and it says that mountain will split. 
and he'll enter in and usher in what is called the millennial age. That's a literal 1,000 year reign. A literal 1,000 year reign and he will rule and reign with absolute authority. And that's literally at this point, where is Jesus at right now? He's at the right hand of God. That's where he ascended. He's in the right hand of God. You know what else he's doing? I don't know if you know this or not. We talked a little bit. Somewhere, somewhere this week I was speaking with somebody in the sense that Satan wants to accuse the brethren. If you're a Christian here today, I will tell you that Satan, first of all, will try to get you to do something you shouldn't do. He will use the temptation, the lust within your own hearts, or he'll help you along. There may be a demon that's along the trail. And as soon as you've done it, because he says to begin with, Nobody will know. It'll be just perfect. Sin is fun. It's fantastic. Trust me. So he does a lot of lying at the front end. Now, here's the part that we forget. After you've sinned, you know what he tells next? There's a lot of truth. Oh, you loser, you. Can you believe it? You sinned. God, did you see him? God, did you see Larry yesterday? Oh, he was, he was blatantly sinning. That's the old double whammy. First of all, you get him to do something that you shouldn't do. And then he says, you're a loser because you did it. That's Satan. That's his best. It's a two-pronged approach. You know what Jesus is doing for me? If I've trusted him as Savior, he pulls out the books and says this, that he's my advocate. If you're a believer, he is your defense attorney. I don't know who you use for an attorney. You're not getting your money's worth. Jesus Christ works because you trusted his blood. He opens it and he says, oh, look at here. Larry Melhoff paid in full. Justified. Take a hike. He is the advocate of Christians. That's what he's doing today. His kingdom is in the kingdom of hearts of men. But he's coming back, and that's what, that's what Peter's saying. When that kingdom comes, Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. And you know what? What would people say to that? Let's read the question. We're going to finish it next week, Lord willing. <laughs> and he said, you can know, verse 36, all the house of Israel know this assuredly. This is fantastically guaranteed that God has made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That word Christ to them means everything that Messiah could have possibly meant. He said, that Jesus is the Christ, the one you crucified, the one that was buried, the one that rose from the dead that you all know happened. Him, God made the Messiah, and you killed your Messiah. I can see him just making that point clear, right? And it says they were pricked in their heart. Why? How would you feel if you were a Jew and you just learned, unfolded before you, that you had not only not known your Messiah, you killed him. But God raised to the dead. That's the cool contrast. And then, you know, the question, this is what we're going to deal with next week, how, how Peter handles it. What should we do? What do we do with Jesus? Let's turn. There's another guy that asked the same question. He asked, now, this was just 50 days earlier. Same question, ultimately. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. There are three responses to this question. Let's take a look at the question, Matthew chapter 27, and let's see who stated it and to whom. Matthew 27, verse 22. Here we go. Uh, We've got to start a little bit before that. Boy, just verse 16. There we go. Verse 15. 
chapter 27, Matthew. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. This is, this is the Passover feast. They've captured, they've indicted Jesus. He's been held hostage, if you will, been uh, derailed in numerous trials. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, whom will you, or, yeah, whom will you that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Christ? Did you see that? Did you see what he said with that? The Jesus who called the Christ. We just skip over that. We call him Jesus Christ. To a Jew, when you say Christ, that's the Messiah. That's the one that the scriptures are speaking of. That's the one you're waiting for. And he just launches it out there. You want me to release Barabbas or this Jesus, who's, I guess, is the Christ? Okay? How do they answer? For he knew that of envy they had delivered him. He was trying to get beyond that. When he had sat down on the judgment seat, his wife sent on him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Can you imagine this? You know, Pilate's in his place. And, sir, sir, here's a note from your wife. So she sends him this note, right? And he's, uh-oh. You know, you can just, uh-oh. But he didn't, he keeps going. Let's, let's, let's keep looking. The chief priests... And the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the two will you that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Now watch verse 22. Pilate said unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called the Christ? That's the ultimate eternal question that rings through the halls of all of the planet of earth. What will you do with Jesus, the Christ? And these people are saying the same question. You talk about having that question. There's not, not a better question for people. What am I going to do with Jesus? Now, that's a question that everyone has to answer at some point. What will I do with Jesus? Now, the really cool thing in this, Peter unfolds next week. We'll be looking at it. There are 3,000 that come to belief in Jesus Christ in a place that literally 50 days before they had crucified this man. Peter, in just a few words, it takes about three minutes, maybe not even, to read that whole sermon. Now, he does go with many more words to continue to persuade them, but think of that. He got them from Jesus of Nazareth, which they hated, seeing him as a Messiah that was killed, that God raised, and he literally, through the, through the uh, prophetic word of David, that he is the Messiah. What do we do with him? Wow. That's powerful. That's the same Jesus that was gathered a little over 50 days ago with the disciples at a place in the upper room. That was the night that he was betrayed. Predetermined. God set it up. It's the same Jesus. That's the same Jesus that Paul Peter is asking him to respond to. And my question to you, what will you do with Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you predetermined beforehand, ordained it to happen. As it turned out, it was in the hands of the Jews. I'm sorry, it was from the Jews in the hands of the Romans to crucify and to slay Jesus Christ, the answer to the sin problem. His rising again, he was too powerful. The promises revealed that he would be risen from the dead. It was guaranteed. And Father, your purpose was to save mankind from sin. Way too powerful for Satan. Way too powerful for death. Way too powerful for anyone to thwart your purposes. Father, it was your great love that made you do the work. 
there were a million reasons and beyond for you not to do what needed to be done. And yet, it was predetermined. Your love overrode the challenges, the reasons not to, to save us from our sins. As you put these Jews on that day, Peter would have put them completely on the opposite pole of God. They killed their Messiah, but God raised him from the dead. That same Jesus, of which Peter spoke of over 2,000 years ago, is the same Jesus, the same Messiah, the same anointed one, of which we must ask the same question. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Father, our response to that is of eternal value. I would ask that in these moments that if there's someone hearing my voice that does not know Jesus Christ personally, that this would be an opportunity for today is the day of salvation to open your heart, to open that innermost chamber, that throne room that right now self is in charge. Self is in that room running things. This is the time to trust Christ, to lean on Him with everything that you have doesn't cost anything in the sense of money, but it costs everything in the sense of authority. These moments are moments of yours and God's together. It might be a time you need to finish business, something that you have been led close to, but not quite, because there are three ways that we can respond to that question. One is to mock, to laugh, to scoff, and say, oh, it doesn't matter. The other one was a later sermon that Peter taught, that preached. There were others that said, well, we'll think about it for a while. And the last response is, yes, I believe Christ is exactly who the Bible says he is, that he is the savior of sinners. I repent of my sin. I trust Christ and Christ alone because the scripture tells me that's the only way to be saved. Those are the three responses. I would ask with all sincerity, and the love of God that you would choose the last because Jesus Christ will save you. The Holy Spirit will inhabit you. He will lead you in all truth. If you've turned your life over to Christ, then you literally are saved. You are a new person. May God be praised. Father, thank you for continuing not only there, but in these apostles' lives as we're going to go through the book of Acts, Lord willing, Father, to see the church grow and to blossom from one soul at a time because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, the work that you did by raising him from the dead to a church now that is vibrant, living. One day, Father, we will be with you because of what Jesus did. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.